Hi, I'm Mark, and welcome to Talk to the Band, the podcast that is passionate about contemporary music. Our guest this week is a UK keyboard player and composer who performed with both The Dams and the Anti-Nowhere League. He also has recording credits on the Dams album Phantasmagoria, which was the band's highest charting album ever until the release of their most recent album in 2018. A warm welcome to Paul Shapley. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. How did you first start playing the piano? guess it's around me names of when I was about five or six, there was an old piano in the corner. I just started banging it like all children do. But then for some reason, Fur Release came out. Maybe someone showed me, I can't remember. So me nan got me an organ when I was six for Christmas out of Woolworths, a little Winfield. You know, the ones you, you play a key and wait five minutes and then a sound <laughs> comes out. They were wind assisted, which was great. And I remember just sort of working out tunes on that. What I do remember is hearing a program downstairs, my mum and dad were watching it, called Van der Volk. And it was a ba-ba-ba-ba-da-da-da. And uh, I, I just kind of worked that out. That's the first tune I can remember working out correctly. Then when I was nine, I went and stayed in Sunderland with a family. The father of the family was a butcher by day and a pianist in the pubs by night. So I'd had an old upright in the back room, which I spent the whole summer on the upright. He had phoned my parents, so when I come back down south, he had told them basically to get me lessons, which they did. Yeah, I was nine or ten then. So I went to uh, private lessons with a lady called Monica Stevens, Jamaican lady. She put me through like the ABRSM. But I was mainly learning Hammond organ, okay. uh, or organ rather. Well, so Monica was teaching you Hammond organ? Yeah, yeah, she had a Hammond organ there and a, and a piano on the right. So I was, t- I was learning both, but... For some reason, I was just attracted to this organ. I, I loved it and the bass pedals and just thought it was more electronic and funky, you know what I mean? But then I was pushed into the piano more, which I'm glad. And that was it, really. That's how I started. And from then on, by the time I was about 13, I was playing in pubs, uh, the Langdon Hotel, various careers club, and just to earn enough money to buy a skateboard, you know. <laughs> I'd do an hour and bore everyone. But... Uh, <laughs> I think they, I used to go around with a jug and uh, they put coins in it. You know, it was a different world mm. and, and you were allowed to do that. You know, a 13-year-old was allowed to actually go in a pub and play an instrument. Yeah, I think they paid me to shut up. But it was like, it was a good experience. It was nerve-wracking, but it taught me a lot. From then on, obviously just through school and that, when you get to comprehensive school, you meet other mm. guys that could play the guitar, drums, bass, etc. So... I met some brilliant musicians like George Young, fantastic guitarist, uh, Matt Pocock on the drums. We, and we, we got little bands together. And then when I was about, it was about 17, I suppose, we started getting into jazz fusion, jazz funk. And there was a guy called Norman Lankford, a saxophone player from Southend. He got this outfit together. He wanted a load of kids in it, kind of thing. And uh, we got that together, a band called Circus. So we started doing the circuit and just playing some jazz fusion, jazz rock, jazz funk, whatever you want to call it. And that was cool, because we was all into that. And that's, yeah, basically that's how I started you know, when I was younger and uh, then ventured into different things. Well, that brings us on quite nicely. Can you talk about how you ended up recording at Twin Track Studios and meeting Jeff Beck? Yeah, 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 that, that was really cool. George, 
George Young, the guitarist, uh, he met a drummer that lived in a pub called The Rock Robin down in Ticehurst in Kent, just outside Wadhurst. So we went down there to record in this place called Twin Trucks. But Jeff Beck was frequently in The Rock Robin. He, he had his mansions at the kind of mm. local. And uh, he knew Michael as a young drummer and used to, you know, encourage him to play. So when we was in there, he, he turned up with a few tins of beers, like, you know, and we was like, wow, this is, this is cool. Uh, especially George was because he was a guitarist, you know. And, uh, yeah, so he just sat there with us and, and listened and gave us some direction and, you know, he was fantastic. Yeah, he was, he was amazing, you know. It's a great experience. So. Yeah, yeah. But you listen and you learn, you know. That's, yeah. that's the, the key, isn't it, like from these people that have been there and done it. Yeah. Um, that led on to you joining the Anti-Nowhere League, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they were from that area. Michael, again, the drummer, he started playing with them. They said they wanted to introduce some keys. So he got me the gig, if you like. So I went down. I remember it was snowing in the winter. We rehearsed in a barn in Tunbridge Wells. It was freezing and I couldn't even move my fingers. <laughs> but they called themselves the league then. They, they yeah. changed. They tried to become, I suppose, a bit more commercial. But it was interesting. So I'd just done a tour with them, a British tour. We'd done about, I don't know, about 10 dates, I think you know, up north and London and wherever. And uh, that was amazing. I mean, that was an eye-opener because we had a transit van that was painted as a Union Jack and we all, and the equipment, was in it. You know, all of us and the equipment in it. So there was, what, six of us, including Slouch, the driver. Yeah, and we toured Britain in that. That, that, that was a mark. I could go on all day about that. But, <laughs> but the great thing about that was as well, the, the guitarist, Mark Gilly, was actually uh, an artist. He was like a cartoonist, so he had worked for people like Beano. He was always sketching what was going on on the tour. It was just amazing, yeah. But that was just the one tour I'd done with those. Yeah. Yeah, but it was eye-opener. But that obviously led you onto the dam, didn't it? It did, yeah, because of the roadie. And I got a phone call, but once we finished that tour, I believe it was about two or three weeks later, I had a phone call from a guy called Andy Cheeseman and he said, oh, I'm the manager of a band called The Damned. I went, oh, right, okay. I'd never heard of them. I was like, oh, right. He said, oh, yeah, they're looking for a keyboard player. Would you be interested? We're in the studio at the moment in uh, Ilpai Island, Richmond, which was Pete Townsend's studio. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to come up? I went, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, great. I thought, oh, this lot. So I went up. Went to the studio and it was like, blimey, mind-blowing for me at the time. It's big giant SSL desks and all this and that. It was like amazing. So I played a little bit for them. They had a lovely big uh, giant Borsendorfer in there. It was gorgeous. And uh, so I played that. And they seemed happy, you know. They put a couple of tracks on. I played along with them. And, but they were nearly finishing that album there. there so I, but I, I managed to do a little bit on there. I got a bit of piano on a couple of the tracks. And... Then they said, we've got a couple of gigs, we're going to promote this album. We've got a couple in New York and a couple in LA. You know, do you fancy coming out there? I was like, well, yeah, I'm 20 years old. I think, <laughs> I think I'll uh, have some of that. So that's how it's kind of started yeah. with The Damned. That album you were talking about, was that Phantasmagoria? Phantasmagoria, yeah. Was that Andy Richards on keyboard? Andy Richards, yeah. I mean, he had done, I think, most of it yeah. before I, I got there, obviously. But he's a... Great, obviously a great pin. He was there when I first got there and he was playing the Borsendorfer. And, uh, and I remember l- listening, thinking, <laughs> I've got some work to do here. 
Yeah, but I, I believe he done like all the Frankie Goes to Hollywood stuff mm. at Psalm, Psalm West. I'm pretty sure he was one of Trevor Horn's crew, wasn't he? He, he? So was. he would have done, yeah. Yeah, he was one of Trevor Horn's crew, yeah. I don't think I've ever come across a band whose lineup has changed so much. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. And some of the musicians have been part of the lineup. We've got Captain Sensible. Yeah. It was like there from the beginning and joined back later on, didn't it? That's he? right. Yeah, he's there now. Yeah. Uh, Lemmy and Motorhead, who I believe you've yeah. met. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to tell us a story about how you first met Lemmy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was, it was weird. We was doing a gig at Finsbury Park and uh, we went out as a band called Nez Nomad and the Nightmares. That was a kind of pseudo, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> band the damned had. They actually done one album. So it was really psychedelic. You know, it was a psychedelic band. I believe I wore a blonde wig. We've done songs from the Naz Nomad album. we also done things like Riders on the Storm, Doors. That was a great gig. But Lemmy turned up and we was backstage. And, uh, yeah, I got to meet him there. And he, as a young, I think I was 21 then, he sort of made me drink Jack Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a nice way. Yeah. Yeah, and I got into Jack Daniels from then on. Got a bottle every Christmas after oh. that. Yeah. And also John Moss, who went on to play drums with Culture Club. Oh, yeah. Paul Gray's a local lad, wasn't he? South End on Sea, Eddie and the Hot Rods, I believe he played for. Paul Gray, I think, left just before I was there because so Bryn, Bryn Merrick came in. I, yeah, I didn't know Paul Gray. But I, I've been led to believe he was with UFO. I think that's who he left it down to join, actually. And, of course, Wayne from Alpha St. Pet. Yeah. Gary Holson. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, I'd, again, I never met him. That was before yeah. my day. But, but, yeah, apparently he was a bass player. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Can we talk about Bryn's hat and when you first met Sting? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Sydney, Australia. Yeah, we was in a club. Basically, we had done the gig, our gig. Then we, the next night we went and see Sting play. We arranged to sort of meet some of the musicians afterwards in this little... I think it was called Benny's. I think Darling Nurse Road, the club. We went and arranged to meet there. But Bryn had had this hat that he bought in, uh, I believe it was Dallas. So he bought this hat and he wore it all the time. Big Texan hat. Daft. But it was cool, but he loved it. Anyway, we went in this club, had a few bevies, he'd come out, he forgot his hat. So he went, he tried to get back in to get it, but he couldn't. And the doorman was saying, no, you're not allowed. And one thing led to another and tempers flared and uh, he got in a fight with him and whatever and uh, got put in the cells. And, uh, yeah, after that, yeah, we went back to Sting's Hotel, which was the gazebo just up the road from ours. Yeah, just met with the guys. But for me, it was amazing because these musicians were all these jazz, top, mm. top, top, Omar Hakim on drums and Kenny Kirkland, pianist, who played with Miles Davis, you know. To me, I was like, wow, I was mixing with... I was in a punk band out there. It was crazy, and I'm mixing with these top jazz musicians from like, America. It's like, you know, not that I was in awe or starstruck, it's nothing like that. I, I just loved chatting to them, you know. I thought, yeah. what can I learn from these guys? You also met Prince and yeah. play or rehearsed at his club? Yeah, well, we played. He owned this club and he was actually rehearsing in there when we, when we went in for the sound check, like acoustically in a circle. It was really weird. So, yeah, that, 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 that was nice. You know, I sort of thought, wow, it sounded, sounded really good. Let's finish up by talking about what are you working on musically these days? Right, I'm just doing my own thing now. It's just, I do things for other people, as in, yep. like, my friend George, he's, he's doing a concept album at the moment, so I've been doing a bit, bit of work on that. I'm writing my own, my own album, uh, or two, as of we mentioned earlier. Now I've got another one on the go. <laughs> yeah, and it's just all instrumental. 
it's kind of library music, you know. Okay. Do you want to tell people what you mean by library music? Yeah, music that can be used in TV programs, adverts. Mm. At the same time, I'm trying to make it a whole piece. Yep. So it's an album, even a concept album. It's, a, it's an album, but sections can be used. So hopefully mm. I'll, 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 get, you know, I'll get it used and get a little bit of money back from it. But, uh, but we'll wait and see. Last time I met you, you were telling me about the Scottish piece you were working on. Yeah. That was a great story. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the story is, is back in the First World War. Basically, the war ended uh, just after Christmas, and there was a lot of Scotsmen from the, the Isle of Lewis and the Isle of Harris. So they came back, they'd survived the war, they got to Liverpool, and they got on a boat there, which then sailed up to the Highlands. It was about a mile off the coast of the Isle of Lewis, where the storm wrecked the boat. The boat went down. It was overcrowded. I think there was something like, it would have only taken 180, but it was 290 people on the boat. So it was overcrowded, but it would have been, wouldn't it? I mean, they all, they all want to get home for the new year. You know, they've been in the trenches. But unfortunately, it sunk, and I think about 75 survived. Maybe not even that. I'm not sure of the details. But it just saddened me. Tragedy of that, you know, it inspired me to start writing this piece of music which is mainly strings and uh, French horn, which will actually lead into other, other things as well. But, yeah, it, it, the story, it's the saddest story I've ever heard. And you've got all, all the people waiting there with their Christmas presents and what have you, you know, it, and they're pulling the dead bodies out at six in the morning out to sea. Uh, it's, it just struck me as not right. No, and after going full of that and... After surviving the trenches, yeah, in the Somme. You know, it's and then you're you're not even a mile from from your homeland. It's time for a cheeky reminder. If you're enjoying today's episode, please do share it with your friends and family and share it on social media and help us get the word out. And now it's time for the final five. If you were to recommend one album or song old on you, that you feel everyone should listen to at least once in their lifetime, what would it be? Yeah, mine's As Falls Wichita, So Falls Wichita Falls. I think anybody would like that album. It's so different to the norm, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, that was what must have been about 79 or 80 or something like that. So how old were you when you first come across that? Can you remember? 17, 16, 17, yeah. And that was, yeah... Pat Muffini and Lyle Mays. Pat Muffini, a jazz guitarist, and Lyle Mays, a pianist. But they combined, it's not rock, but it was jazz, but with this kind of, again, a concept. It's almost like a concept album as well. It's like that rock kind of thing with the Oberheim strings and the synthesizers, mm. but then with these crazy jazz piano and jazz guitar, acoustic guitar, fantastic rhythms. The key point for me is it was different. Yeah, it was different from everything I've been listening to, like Elton John, uh, Miles Davis, Beethoven, Mozart, <laughs> and this was just it almost kind of gelled them all together. If that makes sense, it's just one of my favourite ever albums. Still listen to it now. What artists or albums are you currently listening to? Jacob Collier, I'm listening to him for obvious reasons. Like he's sort of out there, and he's pretty crazy what he's doing. Apart from that, you know what? I've gone sort of back to bark. Yeah? Yeah, bark. I, I tend to lean that way, Rachmaninoff, bark, 
by Overner's Wealth. That's, that inspires me more than anything lately. Mm. Don't know why, but it does. It's just, it's as it was. It, it's wood and metal, as I call it. There's no electronics. And it's violins, piano, you know, brass. It's wood and metal. I love orchestras. It's truly organic, isn't it? Yeah. Good word, yeah, yeah. But it's, that's for me, you know. That's, that's Lately, that's what's inspiring me more than anything the last couple of years, to be honest with you. Yeah, especially bark at the moment, yeah. I've got more, I've gone back into bark. It's, it's like, Is there a piece in particular that you always find yourself going back to? Yeah, St John's Passion. The opening to that is mind-blowing. It's with the dissonance the oboe mm. that he puts above the strings is just, I, I find that it's one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. I can listen to it over and over again. And it's that, that first like, few minutes, that opening. You know, St John's Passion, yeah, that's the one for me. Name a musician or artist who has had a profound effect on you and tell us why. Oscar Peterson, without a doubt, when I was a little kid, he, he used to have a TV programme. And uh, I think it was Friday nights, I'm not sure. But he'd be on for a half an hour playing the piano, you know, and he was just, it's just what he played, the skill. It inspired me when I was like a small child. Just definitely Oscar Peterson. And then Lowell Mays from the Pat Matheny group took it to another level for me. He, he took jazz into a different era, that, you know, just the way he was playing and everything. That really made me sort of sit down and rethink and practice things. But... Yeah, yeah, Th- those two are probably the biggest. There's uh, obviously you can go on forever, yeah, can't you? Nat King Cole, Ray Charles. You know, Ray yeah. Charles is with his vocals is my biggest favourite. Yeah, Ray Charles and Oscar Peterson and Lyle Mays for the modern type. Yeah. And Bark. <laughs> <laughs> if it was possible for you to speak to your younger self when you were first starting out, what advice would you give to yourself then? Practice more. That's it. Practice, practice, practice. It's what I give to my students now. If this is their birthday, I write my birthday card. The last thing I put is practice, practice, practice. <laughs> it's so important, you know. But practice correctly. You can sit there for hours going over the same thing and you're not going to learn it. I know you and I have talked about this yeah, before. Yeah, an art to practising, yeah. There is. And uh, we've discussed this before, haven't we? You can practice correctly and learn something in 10, 15 minutes, whereas practising correctly, you spend weeks on it, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I still do. This afternoon I will. I'll go home and I'll do an hour scales and just try and learn something new. Mm. That's the beauty of music, isn't it? You it can is. go on and on forever. How do you challenge yourself and decide what you're going to work on next, playing-wise? Good question. By what I hear. If I hear something I think I can't play, I have to learn it. Yeah. And I think that's it. It could be on the radio or car whatever. I just think, how the hell did they do that? So I, I'm there. I have to try and technically learn how to do it. Musically, it's okay. You can work the notes out. You know, you can spend a bit of time and work what notes they are, but then technically you've got to play that piano part. Or, so it's lovely. The challenges come and go every day. They're great. Okay. You know, I embrace them. It's that great thing about music as well. You never stop learning. In fact, the more you learn, mm. you realize, the more you realise how little you do know. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was Stravinsky on his deathbed. I think he was about, and quote me on this, about 71, I think he was. He said, I've only just started to learn about music, you know, and it's a good quote. It's like, mm. yeah, because you're never going to know. It's like, it's always going to go somewhere else. 
it's always going to move on. Of all the times over the years you performed, can you pick one gig or show that is really memorable? Well, that's a tough one, actually. There's so many. For grandeur, if you like, I remember doing a gig in the San Siro in Italy because of the size and the crowd, and that, that was cool. But it's certainly not the best gig. It's the small gigs, I remember. Well, the intimate gigs. Yeah, the intimate, the little ones, the little clubs. Even with the Anti-Nowhere League, I remember playing a place called Oddies of Oldham, up in like Manchester, obviously, yeah. and the Manchester Shack. And these were tiny places, no bigger than the room we're sitting in. Tiny underground, dark, black-painted places. But it would be wild. It was crazy, you know, and I remember that for that. And I love it. I love that. Played loads of great places with the damned, obviously. Uh, Santa Monica Civic in L.A., New York, First Avenue, that was always a good gig. Toad's Place in Long Island. There's too many. <laughs> but also, my first gig at the uh, Lee Chapel School when I was probably eight. I think I was about eight, seven or eight. Why did you mention Lee Chapel? Because it stays in my mind because I was so nervous. You know, I was up there on that Winfield organ. My nan bought me. And I played Home on the Range, the green, green grass of home. And Blue Spanish Eyes. I think they were the three pieces I played. And then Anthony Hatt, a guy on harmonica in my class, we'd done a job. I can't remember what we played. But I remember the gig because it was the first gig I ever done. And I was about, yeah, seven. It was only, it was only three or four numbers, but it, to me it was a gig and it was scary. And that was it then. I was like, wow, that's good. And then a few pubs, you yeah. know. But they're the ones I remember. Like the big halls in there, like Hammersmith Odeon, which was great because I'd been and seen so many bands there that when we played there, I was like, wow, I'm actually playing here, I'm on the stage. But I remember the others more. Can we talk about one? I know you were on, I can't remember what TV channel it was, the one that you filmed in Liverpool. Oh, Rock Around the Dock. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that, that, was, that was fantastic. That was a, a really good show. It was, I believe it was on a Saturday night. And it was uh, loads of bands there. Weller was there, Chucka Khan, Frank Goes to Hollywood. And it was all set on this on the dock floating. And there was a big, big, big old sort of pirate ship. It was great. And the bar was in there and all that. So I remember that as being a real, real cool event. And we played Eloise with the Liverpool Philharmonic. Oh, wow. Orchestra. We recorded it, obviously, the day before in a studio with the orchestra. And then they were there. And John Altman was uh, conducting who wrote Death Wish. Yeah. Yeah, the Death Wish. So he conducted. So that, that was a great night, you know, that was really cool. And then we were the last band on. We went out with a track called Anything off of the album, Anything. Yeah, that was a really good night, yeah. What was that like playing with the orchestra? Amazing. Well, I'll tell you what was amazing about that. It blew my mind. The song was in the key of B major. And uh, so it starts on a B major called Bam. And... Uh, they had been sent a tape, or John Altman had, and he had arranged parts for the orchestra. But the tape must have run slow because he was playing it in B-flat. Now, he had arranged it in B-flat. They started, so we all started together. It was like tick, 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 dum, da, da. And remember, the intro to that is massive. It's like brass, strings, everything. So you can imagine the dissonance. It was uh, literally everyone just stopped went, what's going on? And he said, well... When I got this tape, it 
it was in B flat. Now it's in B. Anyway, he went, he looked at the orchestra, looked at them all, right, you're reading in B flat, you've got a plan B. Boom, first take. They all done it. Yeah, but that, that was incredible, yeah. To see that uh, level of musicianship yeah. and be part of it. And they nailed it. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about and we should have done? No, probably not. No, I think we've kind of covered We could go on forever, couldn't we? Could, we could, yeah. No, I, I mean, I could go on about people I met, but I don't really want to, I don't like. Paul McCartney once gave me a really good bit of advice. Never name drop. When did you meet Paul McCartney? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice one. Listen, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Our guest next week is a British singer who was a female vocalist for the Beautiful South between 2003 and 2007. Since then, she's been the female vocalist with The South and in 2010, she recorded the track Move A Little Closer with John Windle of Little Man Tate. If you'd like to find out more, then you'll have to join us next week. And don't forget to spread the word and recommend Talk To The Band to all your friends and family. Take care, we'll see you soon. 